All right, morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Luke 14. On Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel. Verse by verse, we find ourselves at chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Luke 14, 7 through 11. Now, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for these powerful, practical verses about self-exaltation, the danger of it, and the blessedness of humility, really verses that apply to all of us because none of us can say that we are free from pride or a desire to exalt self, whether it's uh, position or prominence we pursue or something else, or there's, there's um, a sense in which these verses should be able to speak to every person here this morning. And so give us receptive hearts, Lord, to what you want to say to us in, in helping us find application for our lives. I pray that we could be challenged, uh, convicted, uh, rebuked if necessary, if for no other reason than that we could become more like your son, Jesus Christ, who, who is the premier example of these verses in, in his uh, incarnation. And so we thank you that we can hear from Jesus through these verses. I pray that this would be a time, whether for the people who are here or those who are tuning in online, that they, that they would hear from you, Lord, that uh, they wouldn't primarily think of me addressing them, but really you speaking to them through your word, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. So, good to see all of you. This morning's verses, they pick up right where last week's verses left off. So, if you want to briefly look back at verse 1, it says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. You remember this from last week? They wanted to see if he was going to heal this man with dropsy. The, the, and if you look at verse 3, it says, Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. So even though verse 1 just mentions this one ruler of the Pharisee, uh, his house where this is taking place, there were other Pharisees and lawyers who were present at this time, and they're watching Jesus carefully uh, at this luncheon to see him, whether he's going to heal this man, which he did do. And then these verses this morning flow right from that account. So you need to picture Jesus still being at this meal with them, all of the same lawyers and Pharisees there who were watching to see if he'd healed this man. Jesus did heal this man. The man has been sent away by Christ. And these verses pick up right from there. And what's interesting, if you look at the end of verse 1, it says, they were watching Jesus closely. But we can tell from this morning's verses that while they were watching Jesus, what was Jesus also doing? He was also watching them. He was watching the way that they sat down, or he was watching the seats that they would choose for themselves. And so because of that, verse 7, he tells this parable. He told a parable to those who were invited. This means invited to the Pharisee's house. He told this parable when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them. And so the synagogues and the assembly halls of the first centuries, and I, and I shared with you last week that this was somewhat of a public event. People would go so that they could watch the Pharisees or the religious leaders um, listen to their discussions as they question each other and listen to the answers and, ha and have these dialogues. And so many people were there to observe this. And they, in the synagogues of the first century, uh, in the assembly halls, they'd have these benches around the outside wall. They'd have a few benches in front, but most of the congregation had to stand or sit cross-legged on the floor. There would be a limited number of good seats and these are the ones that the Pharisees would always try to obtain for themselves. Mark 12, 38, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. And the reason is that where there was a pecking order, where people sat said something about their prominence or importance. And the most honored person 
uh, well, let me say the most honored people would sit the closest to the host. And now you can listen to this and you can say, well, I don't know that this has that much application to me because, you know, I don't really care where I sit. We can go and have a potluck or we can come into the worship service and, and, and uh, you know, maybe as long as I don't have to sit in the front row where I sit is fairly irrelevant. But really, the applica- it's uh, a parable about pursuing status or pursuing prominence. There's this obsession that they had with that. And so this can apply to us. Do we care about position or do we care about status? Or these are the ways in our lives that we would choose the best places for ourselves. And so let's just listen to what Jesus says to them and find the application that it has for us. So he continues in verse 8 and he says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, invited by the host, And then he who invited you, the host, both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. So Jesus warns that if we take an honored seat for ourselves and then someone more honorable comes along, then we're going to have to give up our seat for that person, which is going to be pretty what? Yeah, embarrassing or even humiliating. And this brings us to lesson one. Humility can prevent humiliation. Humility can prevent humiliation. Sometimes one of the real blessings, this has been the case in my life, of humility is the absence of humiliation. Have you ever noticed that most or maybe all of the most embarrassing situations that have occurred in your life um, had an amount of pride involved? Something that we shouldn't have said. Uh, and not admitting when we were wrong or arguing when we, when we should have apologized or doing something that we shouldn't do. People have counseled us against doing it, but we're stubborn, so we choose to do it anyway, and it goes very poorly, and we embarrass ourselves. If not for the pride, uh, you know, in our hearts, we would have listened to the counsel that people had given us at that time and, and not uh, had to experience that humiliation. And so imagine what this looked like in this parable. A man is invited to an important event, and he arrives, and he sits in a very prestigious place, and because he's in a very prestigious place, everyone's going to take notice of him, and so he feels very good about being in this prestigious place. He's going to sit up a little bit straighter. You know, he brings his shoulders back. He kind of looks around, and he enjoys all the people that are noticing him. He's feeling very good about himself until what? Then the host walks up to him in front of everyone and asks him to move to a lower place because there's a more important person who's supposed to be sitting there. And then this person is going to have to get up in front of all of those people and basically demonstrate, not with words but with actions, that he's clearly not as great as he thought he was, and it would be humiliating. But here's the important thing to notice. Why the humiliation? Why would that man be embarrassed? Was it because he had to sit in the lowest place? No, it was because he chose what? The highest place for himself. And so that's the important thing to notice, that the humiliation doesn't come from sitting in the lowest place. In fact, if he had sat in the lowest place, there would have been no humiliation whatsoever. It was choosing the place of honor and then having to move to the lowest place in front of everyone so that everyone can look on and recognize that you thought more of yourself than you should. And humility would have prevented this type of humiliation, which is why Jesus makes the recommendation he does in the next verse, verse 10. He says, instead, or but, when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Now imagine what this looks like. A man is invited to an important event, He arrives, he sits in this very insignificant place, nobody notices him, but then the host of the event, which people would notice, walks up to this man in front of everyone, asks him if he'll come up and sit right next to him, and then how uh, impressive that would have been to everyone there. And so let me be clear about one thing these verses are not guaranteeing, and then one thing that they are guaranteeing. These verses are not guaranteeing promotion in this life. These verses are not guaranteeing necessarily success or prosperity in this life. There are plenty of people who have chosen the path of humility, and they have only experienced 
trials or suffering as a result. You think about missionaries who might serve in uh, difficult parts of the world and they've been persecuted or individuals who have been martyred for their faith. They chose that path of humility. They rejected that life of, of glamour that they might have experienced. And that path of humility did not result in any promotion or success for them. We could pursue humility, and God could bless us with success and prominence, but I would not tell people that if they're humble, they're going to be exalted because of the number of people who have humbled themselves and not experienced exaltation as a result. So these verses are not guaranteeing that. But I will say this, they are guaranteeing that if you pursue humility in this life, even if you don't receive exaltation in this life, you will receive what? exaltation in the next life. And so I think these verses are encouraging us to have an eternal or heavenly view, not think about, I mean, perhaps you're humble and perhaps you, you see the fruit of that humility, that path that you took, but I think that even more so these verses are encouraging us to have this eternal perspective that we're looking beyond this life. People who are not rewarded for their humility in this life will be rewarded in eternity. Now, it takes two things to pursue the humility that Jesus is describing here. First, it takes faith because it takes trusting God versus trusting ourselves, right? It takes basically taking our lives and putting our lives in God's hands and saying that He's in control and He can do what He knows is best with my life and I have faith in Him. And then the second thing that it takes is it takes patience. It takes patience to allow God to work and do the things that he wants to do in our lives versus us trying to manipulate circumstances or control them to bring about the end that we think is best, instead leaving it to the Lord. And while we exercise that faith, we're also having to exercise patience as we allow God to work and, and do what he knows is best. And Jesus summarizes it this way in verse 11. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this right here this is one of the most common themes in Scripture. Just listen to the number of times that God says this. Psalm 75, 6, exaltation, it comes neither from the east, the west, nor the south, but God is the judge. He puts one down and he exalts another. James 4, 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5, 5, all of you be submissive to one another, be clothed with humility for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And so when we see something that God says so many times in his word, and I'm not even going to say in different words. I mean, he's, you, he's saying, making this point with many of the same words throughout the Bible. That tells us what about this principle. It's very important that God wants to make sure that we don't miss just how crucial it is to pursue humility in this life and allow God to do the exalting. Pride gets us in trouble. It puts us at odds with God. It actually says, I mean, just think about this for a second, that pride causes God to resist us. Isn't that a very sobering thought that God would oppose you, that we would make a decision in our lives that would cause God to be in opposition to us, or when I think of him resisting us or opposing us, I think of him working against us. Would you ever make a decision if you knew that it was going to cause God, the creator of the universe, the king of kings, lord of lords, as, as Pastor Nathan was talking about in Sunday school, to work against what you were doing? I mean, a terribly sobering thought. But if we pursue humility, then it says that God gives us grace. 1 Peter 5, 5, be submissive to one another, be clothed to humility. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, which is to say the opposite, that if we pursue humility, we can expect God to work on our behalf, that we can expect God to be for us. Sometimes we're confused about what humility is and isn't. When I became a Christian, I thought humility was having this super low view of yourself, like basically the worse you could think of yourself, then the, or the more you're like Eeyore, you know? Oh, thank you for noticing me because I'm, I'm just such a pathetic person. And the more that someone acts like that, that the humbler they are. And that's a terrible view of humility because that view of humility still has all of the attention where? Yeah, on the person. The person who thinks that is humility doesn't know that that is actually 
pride because all of the focus or attention is put on self, which is what pride is. So instead, humility is not thinking less of ourselves. Humility is thinking of ourselves less. Humility is preferring others to ourselves, putting others before us, which is why 1 Peter 5, 5 says, I mean, consider this association here. Be submissive to one another and be clothed in humility. Be submissive to one another and be clothed in humility. Peter associates submitting to each other or thinking of others before ourselves as being humble, because that's what it means to be humble, to defer, to, to, to look to others uh, more than we are first or before we look to ourselves. Philippians 2, 3, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And this doesn't mean thinking others are better than us. It doesn't mean walking around thinking, well, he's so much smarter, or, he, or she's so much better, or, or he's so much more capable than I am, or she's so much more significant than me. In loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. It means thinking of others more often than we think of ourselves. Let each of you, which is why it's followed up with this, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others, because that's what humility is, preferring others' interests above our own. Consider this. God let Paul have what I would consider to be the most dramatic experience, and I, I don't say this lightly. I mean, I consider, you know, Elijah being on Mount Carmel. I consider David killing Goliath. I consider Moses unleashing the plagues, but I, in my opinion, the most dramatic experience that anyone has ever known was given to the Apostle Paul when he was able to visit. He didn't seem to know whether he did it physically or or in the spirit, but was able to visit where? I mean, heaven, and it was so dramatic. He says he wouldn't even talk about it in the first person, and he wouldn't even describe what it was like when he was able to visit heaven. Well, when you experience something that dramatic, something that nobody else in all of human history has anything that can compare with it, what is the danger then for Paul? What's the danger? Pride. So listen to this. 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says, lest I should be exalted or lest I should exalt self above measure by the abundance of the revelation. So Paul says, because of what I've seen, I could exalt myself. God has given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So twice in this verse, Paul talks about the danger of exalting self and says that God cared enough about him that God was going to, let's say, bless him with this thorn that would keep him what? Keep him humble. So God hates people exalting themselves so much. He gives Paul this thorn or he loved Paul enough to give him this thorn to keep him humble. Now, I read this and I think, I don't want God to have to put a thorn like that in my life. Or maybe I don't want God to have to put more thorns like that in my life. I look back and wonder how many thorns has God already put in my life to, to humble me, or how many thorns has God already given me to prevent me from exalting self. And if we do have some thorns, we should recognize that they are there to keep us humble, and we should fear self-exaltation so that God doesn't have to introduce more thorns into our lives to prevent us from um, exalt, becoming proud. I want to briefly address the kids for a moment. I know that it's hard to be humble with your parents. Trust me, as a, when I say this, as, a, as your pastor and as a father of nine myself, when you humble yourself before your parents, do you have any idea what it does to us? It just melts our hearts. There are few things as parents that are in, as endearing to us as you being humble, as seeing you be honest, transparent, acknowledge faults, share struggles, or admit your, your weaknesses. It blesses us beyond measure. And if it blesses us that much, guess who else it blesses? Even more. God himself. And what does, and what does God do with the humble? It says he exalts them. And so, as a child, you have, even, you have plenty of reasons to be humble. It, it blesses your parents' hearts, and it blesses God's heart, and he says that he'll exalt you 
in response to that. When you're prideful with your parents, maybe, you know, digging in your heels, pouting, making excuses, then you're choosing to be disciplined by your parents. But more than that, you're also choosing, in a sense, to be disciplined by God because God says that he takes those who exalt themselves and he humbles them. Your life will be radically different if you start practicing humility now instead of being forced to learn it later. And there have been uh, many people who can look back as adults and wish that they hadn't been so entitled as children. There are people who look back and wish their parents had not spoiled them. There are people who look back and wish their parents had been firmer with them. And so if you have parents who have been disciplining you, who have been training you as unpleasant as it might be at the time, be thankful that your parents are setting you up to, to not suffer in the future because of your pride. For adults, let's focus on marriage. Humility can be difficult in marriage. It's hard to humble ourselves before our spouse, especially if we're upset. Generally, conflict rarely belongs to only one side or one person. And so the difficulty associated with humbling ourselves in conflict or in marriage is that we're probably upset with our spouse, and it's the last person in the world we want to be humble toward because we think that our spouse needs to be humbling himself, right? (laughs) Or we think our spouse needs to be humbling herself. And so if anything, we don't want to humble ourselves because we're upset with them. We think that they should be apologizing. We think they're the ones that should be confessing. We think that we're the ones who are due or owed the apology right now. But don't grow cold in practicing humility in marriage. God wants to use your humility to do great things and to bless your relationship. It is not easy to apologize humbly without making an excuse. It's not easy to say, you know, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I should not have done that, will you please forgive me? But if we will practice humility, God will soften our hearts and he'll bless. Or we could say, if we'll practice humility in marriage, then he will do what with our marriages? Bless or exalt them. And by exalt, I just mean providing what? Joy, peace, unity, rest, love, all of the gifts that we want marriage to provide for us. And I believe those are afforded when God affords them to us, when he sees the humility in our marriage that would cause him to desire to exalt our marriage and bless us with those gifts. Be the first one in the relationship to choose humility over and over and then watch God work as a result. Now, there's a perfect example. I I couldn't help but think of a certain person in the Old Testament who absolutely disobeyed this parable. There's one person, I think, more than anyone else that looks as though this parable perfectly applies to his disobedience. And this brings us to lesson two. Adonijah exalted himself and was humbled. Adonijah exalted himself and was humbled. In verse eight, if you write in your Bible, you can circle the words, sit down in a place of honor, and you can write Adonijah's name. One more time, if you write in your Bible, in verse 8, circle the words, sit down in a place of honor, draw a little line, and write the name Adonijah, and then you can turn to 1 Kings 1. We will not turn back to Luke 14. 1 Kings 1, so toward the end of the historical books, before uh, Chronicles, after Samuel, so Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, 1 Kings 1. This book basically picks up where 2 Samuel left off. It seems to have jumped forward some toward the very end of David's life. He probably only has months left to live at this point. Because of David's sins, his adultery with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah, God has introduced what I would consider probably the very worst um, suffering to experience. And by worst kind of suffering, I mean that suffering associated with our own family or our own children, um, few people will tell you that there's anything worse than problems associated with their children. And because of David's sin, God said that the sword would not depart from his house. And because of that, he experienced family turmoil, literally until his very last breath. It has aged him, all of his suffering has. He's, for Old Testament times, David, he dies at 70. That is not particularly old. And if you look in verse 1, you can see how old he looked. 
Now, King David was, I mean, for someone who had been so, so strong and healthy earlier in life, it says he's old, he's advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. People get older, they experience poor circulation, makes it harder for them to stay warm. Physically speaking, not emotionally, not mentally, and not spiritually, despite what Adonijah would have thought, David was very weak, and he was very feeble. He can't get out of bed to care for himself, say nothing about care for the kingdom. And this sets the stage for what his son Adonijah does. Look in verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself. Now right there, do you see that when you read those words, Haggith exalted himself, where does your mind go? Hopefully it goes to Luke 14. Hopefully you think of the parable we just read and the danger associated with doing exactly what Adonijah is doing right here. Adonijah exalted himself, which tells us what's about to happen to him. He's going to be humbled. He exalts himself and he says, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen. Nobody did this for him. Notice he did this for himself and 50 men to run before him. And I read this and I think, who does this? You know, who prepares chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before them? Do you know actually who does do this besides Adonijah? Does anyone remember? Absalom did. So you almost think that Adonijah would have learned from the terrible example of his brother Absalom, but he didn't, and he followed in his footsteps. Absalom, who also tried to take the throne from his father David. Adonijah does the same thing. And Adonijah supported, or excuse me, should have supported his father in his old age, but he sees David's weakness. He takes advantage of this vulnerability. He thought David was too feeble to stop him, so he tries to seize the throne for himself. And one of the things that really stood out to me was the contrast between Adonijah and his father David regarding the throne of Israel. Because there's a sense in which, just like Adonijah demonstrates the truth of the parable Christ preached in Luke 14, David presents the other side of that. And here's what I mean. David was anointed to be the next king, so he didn't have to wonder if he was supposed to be king. He knew he was supposed to be king. Was there ever any moment during Saul's life that you saw David ascend toward the throne? No, he made no moment, no movement toward it whatsoever. It would be absolutely true to say that David chose the lowest place and he remained there until what? Until the host or until God came and said, you move up to this highest place and you take it. In fact, you could say this, David did not even move to the throne after Saul had died. I mean, if if you were in David's day and you lived and, and Saul died, you're like, oh, David, finally, you've been anointed. You know the throne belongs to you. Now you can take it. And he still didn't. He waited. He was in Hebron where he reigned for seven and a half years just over the southern area of Judah until the other tribes came and brought him to the throne. I mean, he could have marched in and, and said, God has anointed me. I am to be the next king. But he made no movement, sat in that very low place until God came, tapped him on the shoulder and said, now it is time. Now I'll put you on the throne. And in that sense, David stands as a great example of the truth of Christ's parable and the complete opposite of his son, Adonijah, in this account, who's willing to try to take the highest place from his father while his father is still alive. He didn't even, not only did he not wait for David to come and talk to him about it or for someone else to talk to him about it after David died, he pursues it while David is still breathing. And you could say, well, how could Adonijah become such an arrogant, selfish person? Well, take a look at verse 6. Part of it was David's fault. I think because of David's sins, he was unable to punish or discipline his children. He, he saw so much sin in his own life, it hindered him from raising a, a hand of discipline against his sons, probably thinking, how could I, a murderer and, and a, a adulterer, discipline my children for the things they're doing? And so verse 6, David had never at any time displeased Adonijah by asking him, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. And so 
you've got David never even once going to his son and saying, why are you doing this? You should not be doing this. And I'll just tell you, for all the children listening, the second time to address you in this sermon, if you have parents who come to you and say, why have you done thus and so, if you don't want to turn out like an Adonijah, you thank your parents for investing in your life and talking to you about the decisions that you make so that you don't grow up to be like this person. And the other thing, it says that he's very handsome. David, we're told, I'm not making a joke, he, we're told he was an attractive man. He seemed to be attractive to multiple uh, uh, attractive women and had a lot of attractive children. And in this case, Adonijah's attractiveness or handsomeness ended up being a real detriment to him because it became a source of pride. In verse 5, it says he exalted himself, exactly what Jesus said not to do. So if you write in your Bible, you can circle the words, Adonijah exalted himself. Draw a little line and write Luke 14, 11. Circle Adonijah exalted himself, draw a line and write Luke 14, 11. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, which is about to happen to Adonijah. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Adonijah is about to experience that destruction and fall. Now, one of the things that makes the military, I remember when I was, I received an ROTC scholarship, but I wasn't an officer yet. I had to go through ROTC. And when, when I was going to become an officer, I remember all this paperwork I had to fill out. I, I'm not exaggerating. I think 20, 30, 40 pages just signing. You're putting your initials everywhere. And why is that? Because when you join the military, you become the property of the government, right? And so the military has greater possession of you than most occupations or employers would. The very, pretty much the worst that could happen in most jobs is you get fired. Well, the government owns you. They don't fire you. But they can humiliate you. And so I remember times in the military being screamed at or watching people be screamed at in ways that would never occur, <laughs> you know, in the workforce or else an employer would, would lose his job. And so there were some times where you would see someone do something, a soldier, or in other words, I'm saying this basically, the military has a way when you exalt yourself of humbling you. And there were times when I saw soldiers make decisions, only a few times this happened, that I recognized the foolishness, or let's say stupidity, of that decision to, to blow off an order, to disrespect a commander, do something very proud. And when that would happen, if that soldier is near you, you do this. And you just try to get away from the blast radius, right? You don't want to be caught in the crossfire. And there's at least one time I can remember when I was that person, people were moving away from me, and I thought, okay, I'm about to get, I'm about to get blasted here. Maybe there are kids who have seen their siblings. Has this ever happened? If you, if you have brothers or sisters, you've watched your siblings make a decision, and then you sort of moved away from them because you didn't want to be hit when the, when the belt came in down, right? You didn't want to get caught by that belt or that paddle. And so you kind of moved over. And I mention this because that's what I think of when I read here about Adonijah. I think if you were living at this time, you just want to get very far away from him so that you're not caught in this blast radius. Skip to verse 11. This is a long chapter. We don't have time to read all of the verses. It's already, I already cut out, cut out quite a bit from this sermon, but I would encourage you to read all of it on your own. Verse 11, Nathan, this is Nathan the prophet. He says to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, one of David's other wives, has become king and David, our Lord, does not know it. Now, therefore, come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. So Nathan the prophet, I don't know if I'd say, I guess that's not too much to say, one of the unsung heroes of the Old Testament, a godly, faithful man to David throughout his life up to the very end, comes to help David and David's son Solomon and David's wife Bathsheba, and he comes and he says to Bathsheba, do you know that one of David's other wives, Haggith's son, Adonijah, has taken the throne for himself? And if he takes the throne, guess who's going to die? Guess who's going to die? Solomon is, and Bathsheba, because Solomon is the one, as we'll see in a moment, who 
it had already been shared or announced that Solomon was supposed to become king. And so if Adonijah becomes king, the first person he's going to execute is Solomon because he poses the greatest threat to the throne and probably the, who would be the queen mother, which would be Bathsheba. So verse 13, go in at once to King David and say to him, did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Why then is Adonijah king? And then, while you are still speaking with the king, they're going to time this well, I also will come in after you and confirm your words, because things are confirmed by the mouth of two, at least two witnesses, right? Now, here's what's interesting. Second Samuel 3, I think it's verse, the first few verses, maybe 1 through 5, it lists the sons of David. Adonijah was the fourth son, but the older three brothers, Amnon, Chiliab, and Absalom, we know Amnon and Absalom are dead, and I suspect Chiliab is dead too because there's nothing recorded about him. With those three brothers out of the picture, it could look like Adonijah was the choice to become king, but it seems that sometime in the past, we're not told when, but Nathan knew and Bathsheba knew that David had announced that Solomon would be the next king of Israel. Now, if, if David has announced this and Bathsheba knows it and Solomon knows it, you can be sure that everyone else close to them also knows that Solomon is supposed to be the next king of Israel, which means that when Adonijah does this, it is nothing other than absolute rebellion against his father. It is knowing what his father wants, or, in, or you could say what God himself wants, blowing that off to exalt himself and be on the throne. Now, you might wonder why Nathan went to Bathsheba instead of going straight to David, and there are two possibilities. One possibility is that things had to be established by the mouth of two witnesses, at least, and Nathan thought that Bathsheba would be the fitting next witness because it's her, and she would want to be that witness because it's her son that is supposed to be on the throne in place of Adonijah. But my suspicion is Nathan went to Bathsheba first because she knew, or excuse me, Nathan knew that David is typically what toward his sons? Indulgent. He's an indulgent father who rarely, if ever, I don't know that there's, aside from this account of 1 Kings, any examples of David disciplining his children. And so that's what I think. He knew David was indulgent. He goes to Bathsheba, and then skip to verse 29. Nathan and Bathsheba, they successfully speak to David. And then verse 29, after listening to them, David swore, saying, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, so he's saying, as I swore this earlier, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, even so will I do this day. And so David says, just like I swore would happen, I will ensure this day that my promise to you ends up coming true. I will settle things. Now, because of David's age, uh, or in particular, not I wouldn't say his age, but because of David's feebleness, because of his weakness, Adonijah did not expect this. He didn't anticipate any resistance from his father. He thought he'd be too old or feeble to do anything about it, and that was one of his big mistakes here. And now things are about to get really cool, unless you're Adonijah. Look at verse 33. David said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel, just as David and Saul have been anointed. Solomon is anointed. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. You shall then come in after him and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king, Solomon shall be in my place, and I have anointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Now, guess what you can, you can't, let me say this, you can't touch much of what belongs to the king, believe it or not, without being killed. To take, which is why you see sometimes when 
men wanted to take the throne, they would take the king's wives or harem because that was one of the strongest things you could take from a king to communicate that you were taking that king's place. And the whole reason I mention that is when David says, put Solomon on my own mule, notice he doesn't say on a mule, but to put Solomon on David's own mule was to communicate very clearly that Solomon, that this fulfills David's wish for Solomon to take his place. It's the evidence that he has been appointed as his successor. And so they're having this huge, wonderful celebration. Adonijah was trying to do this for himself, but this is what David did for Solomon, and this brings us to lesson three. Solomon was moved up higher and honored in the presence of all. Solomon was moved up higher and honored in the presence of all. Again, if you want to write in your Bibles, you can circle the words, have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule, and you can write Luke 14.10. Because Solomon was in the lowest place, David said, friend, move up higher, and thus he, or thus Solomon, was honored in the presence of all, a tremendous example of what Jesus said in Luke 14. Now look at verse 38. Go through these verses pretty quickly. Zadok the priest, these prominent men who stayed faithful to David, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites, they went down and they had Solomon ride on King David's mule. They brought him to Gihon. And there Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. They blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went out after him. After Solomon, they're playing on pipes and they're rejoicing with great joy so that, look at this, the earth was split by their noise. Why was there such a great celebration? Because Proverbs 29.2 says, what happens when the righteous are in power? The people rejoice. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. And that's what's happening here. And there's no mention of the people rejoicing when Adonijah made or tried to make himself king. The only rejoicing or celebration was, oddly enough, the celebration of rejoicing he instituted or, or tried to facilitate himself. And it was so loud. Verse, the end of verse 40 says, the earth was split by their noise. That is unbelievably loud, isn't it? It was so loud that guess who hears it? Who heard the celebration? Adonijah and all of the people with him. Look at verse 41. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. They just finished celebrating him being king. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, what does this uproar in the city mean? So just picture this. And this is, I would encourage you, anytime you read the Bible, you'll do yourself such a service if you picture these beautiful scenes, if you put yourself in them and you imagine what this really looked like. Adonijah throwing this huge celebration for himself, bringing in some of these very sadly disloyal people to David like Joab and Abiathar the priest who betrayed David and turned to Adonijah, some other people that wanted to be on the winning side who I don't think had any real concern for Adonijah, but were part of this celebration too, and everyone's rejoicing and toasting and all the wonderful things they're saying about Adonijah being king. And then right in the middle of that, there's this loud uproar that splits the earth. And Joab, David's previous general who'd been used to murder Uriah, says, what is that noise? And then look at this, verse 42. While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar the priest, this is Abiathar who joined Adonijah and betrayed David. And Adonijah said, come in, for you are a worthy man and you bring good news. Good news for who? <laughs> good news for David. Good news for Solomon. Good news for the nation of Israel. Terrible news for Adonijah. And I believe this has got to be one of the most humiliating situations in all of Scripture. I'm not saying people didn't suffer worse than this. But I'm saying if you asked me for the most embarrassing moment anyone experienced, we're about to read it right here. Verse 43, Jonathan answered Adonijah, and he said, No, for our Lord King David 
has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him these important people, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and Pelethites, all the people that stayed loyal to David. They had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. And they have gone up from their rejoicing. And what was that like for Adonijah to hear that? Everyone's rejoicing over Solomon being king, which they were not doing regarding Adonijah being king. So the city's in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. And so you hear that, and it's like, man, that must have been terrible for Adonijah. But at least he still has what? All of his friends that came and joined him, right? Look at verse 49. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled. They were terrified, and they rose. And each one of them went his own way, so that Adonijah was left there all by himself. We have just watched the person who exalted himself be humbled. And I just wish I could have seen Adonijah's face when he received this news. I mean, talk about a 180. Have you ever seen a faster 180 in all of Scripture than Adonijah one moment thinks the throne belongs to him, and he finds out it's given to his brother. One moment he's celebrating his own accomplishments, which there weren't really any, and the next minute they're celebrating his brother. Everyone abandons him. His guests are afraid because they know that to stay loyal to Adonijah is to be an enemy of the throne or an enemy of Solomon and would result in death. So everyone abandons him. He didn't have any of the prominent people with him anymore. So the prominent people who joined him, like Abiathar and Joab, they abandoned him. But here's the thing. Why would Adonijah think that those people that betrayed David wouldn't what? <laughs> Betray him. Why would he think for a moment? And why, isn't that the case? I mean, whenever people, and I'll just tell you this, I listen to a guy say this, and I cannot tell you how true it's been. When people come to this church and they start trashing their previous church or their previous pastor, I'm just like, give it time, and you're going to be at your next church saying the same things about me and this church. Whenever you're listening to people or you see people, they gossip, they slander, whether they do it on person or whether they do it on social media, understand that there's nothing stopping them from doing that to you too, except you doing what they want. And the moment you stop being the friend that they want or pleasing them the way that you do, you're going to be slandered. You're going to be betrayed. That's going to be your name or your description on social media. And so Adonijah, he should have known that these people had no real loyalty toward him or affection for him because they were willing to betray their own king. They came to celebrate with him only because they thought, he was the victor, only because they thought he was on the winning side. And as soon as they realized that that's not the winning side anymore, they're gone. And let's not forget how all this happened. Look back at verse 5. Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And just think of the application to Jesus' parable. Adonijah takes the best place. He has to give it up to someone more honorable than him, and that happened to be his own brother Solomon. And then with shame, he had to take the lowest place. You might also notice that Solomon never said anything throughout this whole situation. I know I skipped some of the verses, but even if I read all of them or you read into the next chapter, there's nothing from Solomon that's dishonorable. There's no gloating. There's no pride. There's no boasting. Instead, Solomon exemplifies that humility that Jesus said should characterize our lives when we pursue that lowest place and are brought up or exalted to the higher place. Now, I want to conclude with one more lesson, lesson four. Jesus is the premier example of humility followed by exaltation. Jesus is the premier example of humility followed by exaltation. If you're going to have a sermon about the humble being exalted, or you're going to have a sermon and talk about taking the lower place, can our minds go anywhere except to Christ himself? 
whatever examples might come to mind or that we can look at in Scripture, can any of them compare with Jesus? Solomon is a great example of humility followed by exaltation, but pales in comparison to Jesus' example. Here's the humility. Philippians 2, 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Could you choose a lower place than death on a cross? You're going down the ladder. He's saying all the things that Christ did, and you reach the lowest rung, unimaginable to most people. Dying on a cross, that's the lowest seat. You can't get lower than that. And this humility is then followed by the exaltation. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted Christ, bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Christ every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Jesus had the right to teach this parable. I don't, I feel inadequate to teach this parable. I know that I uh, disobey what Christ taught, but Jesus had the credibility to teach this parable because he fulfilled it perfectly. He deserved the highest seat, yet he took the lowest one, but he will be moved up to the highest place by the Father. Jesus has been exalted by God, and so we must choose who we are going to exalt. Are we going to exalt self, or are we going to exalt Christ in our lives? Because there's really only room for one king, For us to increase, we're causing him to decrease. For him to increase, we must decrease. We must choose that lowest place so that Christ himself can be exalted and we don't receive the credit or glory for it. If you have any questions about anything I shared from this morning's sermon or I could pray for you in any way, I'll be up front after service and I'd consider it a privilege to be able to speak with you. Father, we thank you so much for this parable from Jesus and how you record so honestly the, the victories and failures of people in the Old Testament. I thank you for what was shared with us about Adonijah and Solomon and David. I thank you for what Jesus taught and more than what Jesus taught, what he demonstrated in his life. And when God, you came from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, we thank you. What a tremendous demonstration of humility. And we look forward to Christ's exaltation, his return, Help us to live in such a way that he could be exalted through our lives as we give him the the glory and honor for anything good that we see around us or that's done in our lives, Lord, that we would deflect any credit and that it would be given to him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.